Welcome to The Brain Trust, a physician's guide to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, brought to you from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians. I'm Dr. Kate Rowland, family physician, member of the IAFP, and faculty at Rush University. Funding for this podcast series was provided by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health. The goal of The Brain Trust and this podcast series is to educate and empower the primary care clinician in the early detection, diagnosis, and management of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Clinical resources, free CME, and other educational materials are available online at thebraintrustproject.com. CME credit is available for each podcast. The Illinois Academy of Family Physicians is accredited by the Accreditation Council of Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information on how to receive credit can be found on the Brain Trust Project website. Thank you for joining us as we empower each other and provide training on the early detection of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. And now, today's episode. In today's episode of The Brain Trust, a physician's practical guide to Alzheimer's and related dementias, I'm here as your host, Dr. Raj Shah, and I'm a professor in family and preventive medicine and the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center on the west side of Chicago at Rush University Medical Center. So today I've taken the jaunt a little bit west on uh, the expressway from Rush University, and um, I've stopped at a really important institution in our city, which is the Loyola Heinz Veterans Administration Hospital System uh, in Maywood. And today we get to really learn some interesting things about early detection of Alzheimer's and related dementias from the perspective of the VAs. And so today I'm walking in the door right now and I'm meeting up with Dr. Avinash Manta, who's the Associate Program Director of the Loyola Heinz Geriatric Fellowship. And we're really looking forward to the opportunity to talk. So uh, Avinash, thank you so much for having me over today and the IAFP and participating in our podcast. Thanks so much, Raj. Thanks, yeah. So as we grab our cup of coffee here and try to like stay awake in the afternoon, uh, uh, we were going to just have a little bit of a conversation about what's going on. So tell me, a l- I mean, I've always lived in the city, you know, and, and kind of did my career and my work around the city. And I've, I've had some events at the Heinz VA, but I, I'm always kind of curious, like a little bit about the VA and who you see at the Loyola Heinz VA. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, being on the uh, west side of Chicago and one of the suburbs, Maywood, as one of the largest VAs in the Chicago area, and then a little bit about who you see as a population, especially those that might be at risk for dementia? Absolutely. I serve a very racially diverse, ethnically diverse, income diverse population, right? So everyone is a veteran, but of course, I would say that the majority of the veterans are actually peacetime veterans. That's important Mm. to understand. Okay. So I think everyone associates you know, veterans with being wartime. And I actually do have a practice, which I do, which is home visits. And I actually oh. do have a large panel of patients who are out by Joliet area, who I see in you know more sort of rural areas. That's actually the majority of my practice is doing home visits, both in, in Joliet and in the Heinz area also. I do have a clinic once a week as well. So the Geriatric Continuity Clinic, where I do work with the trainees and fellows and with residents. And I think it's a it's a very interesting population, certainly. As I mentioned, very diverse. Mostly yeah. men in the older cohort. We are getting uh, so some more women in those younger veteran populations. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, and that's always so impressive to me about the wide reach the VA has in serving our veterans across multiple areas in the region. 
from rural to metropolitan to urban areas, and then just the range of diversity because of the group that serves in the military and eventually becomes the vets. So really appreciate it. And I think you kind of told us a little bit about, you know, your different clinics that you do and your home visits, which is really kind of interesting. So as a family physician, geriatrician working in this space, right, with mainly an older population as the veterans that's at risk, how common is it for you to be dealing with issues around cognition or evaluations for concerns about memory from your patient population as a primary care physician in the VA? I would say that's very common, right? Uh, so I would say most of my job, as I mentioned, so is doing home visits. So I'm veterans who are homebound, right? And oftentimes the reason why they're in the program is because of dementia, right? And we are oftentimes making a dementia diagnosis on our veterans also. Yeah. And then how, how do you kind of go through a little bit of that process, right? Like uh, so, say you're working with an older veteran or somebody refers, you know, in the system that this person requires a little bit more support. They're having some cognitive functional issues. I'm just kind of curious how you kind of approach that first engagement with somebody, especially in the home setting. I'd be curious about that. Yeah, of course. And I would say that I'm fortunate to be working with a large team. So with our home care program, it's a whole team of people. So we have a nurse who is making a visit usually every month on these veterans. We have a pharmacist on our team who is incredibly helpful to be going through medications. Of course, want to assess in any patient who is showing some signs of memory loss. Is there a potential for a medication interaction? Anticholinergic medications, of course, the antihistamines, first-generation antihistamines, TCAs, tricyclic antidepressants, oxybutynin, all those you know, medications, of course. And we do have a geriatric psychiatrist who I work with on the team. We have a psychologist on the team. We have a social worker. Uh, we have dietitian. We have PT. So I'm really fortunate in that we have a large team to actually work with, right? And so, so at that first diagnosis, we are doing a cognitive assessment on the first visit and also once a year at least. Mm. So we do the slums, okay, so the yeah. St. Louis University Mental Status exam. And I'm also fortunate that if there is a, a doubt that I have, so we have more extensive services, right? So we have neuropsychology, we have other services who can do some more extensive cognitive testing on these veterans. And if there is, in fact, a depression coexisting, right, which oftentimes, as we know, can have some overlap, you know, with dementia in our elder population, we're able to identify it and to treat it, right? So it's a, it's a team that we have, which is really helpful to me. Yeah, that's really impressive to have all those resources potentially available and also other eyes and ears, right? Like especially the nurse going in, doing the home visits, seeing persons monthly, getting to the know them. They get more comfortable with bringing up some of the issues and then we can call in the other groups that you know can help to isolate what might be going on. I was just kind of curious, you know, because when we've had other podcasts and we've discussed this, there's sort of a broader initiative to use something called like the Medicare annual wellness visit as an opportunity annually to be able to, you know, ask older adults about how they're doing with their mentation and their mobility and their, you know, other geriatric potential conditions that could have reversible effects. Does the VA kind of follow, when you said you can check in like yearly, does, do they follow something similar to like the Medicare annual wellness visit concept? Yep. So the nice thing about doing home visits, and I would also add to in my clinic, which I have once a week, I do also have you know longer visits. So we have an hour for a new patient and we have half an hour for 
a follow-up patient, right? So, but in the home, I, it's really great because I don't have that, you know, same time constraint that I would have in the clinic, right? So if I want to spend an hour looking at gait, assessing all their medications, looking at the home environment, you know, taking ancillary history from the family who's oftentimes there, right? We oftentimes need that to actually help us with the diagnosis of dementia, right? So that's all super important, but I'm actually able to, you know, have that time with the patient, which is, you know, really helpful, which also helps me out a lot. Yeah, so we, it gives you the time to do some of those things to look for some of those reversible, potentially reversible causes, like you've mentioned already, like looking at medication list, right? And seeing if there's an interaction that might be affecting somebody's cognition. What are some of the other things that you kind of look for that might be like reversible, potentially reversible causes when you're doing that evaluation? Sure. Yeah. So obviously looking at your so at your basic, you know, lab abnormalities, right? You do have the patients who have, you know, hypothyroidism, who have a deficiency of either B12 or folic acid, right? So obviously looking at that, treating that. I would add that in the veteran population, we um, also do have, there is a relationship between PTSD mm, and dementia, mm, right? Yeah, which glad is you very, brought that up, yeah. Which is very important. We don't know yet if it's actually causal, but we do know that, Actually, those who have PTSD are about twice as likely to actually get dementia, right? So it's a very important relationship. And also we think that there is a relationship between TBI, a traumatic brain injury, and also getting PTSD and dementia, right? So I would add that those things are important to be thinking about. And I would also add too that there are, you know, lots of veterans who are not in the VA. So all of our doctors like across the state in Illinois will be having veterans as their patients, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's important to be thinking about that. Yeah, no, that's great because, you know, that is not something always we see in sort of like a more private setting. You have a little bit more of a concentrated experience, even if some of them are more peacetime, just, you know, in the conflict situations of these things like post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injury and keeping those in mind, right? As you're seeing people for those evaluations and working with them a little bit closer to see about cognitive changes is really important to think about in the VA population. Are you seeing some of the similar things now that, you know, you are seeing some more older women kind of going through it or more women at risk? Are some of those same factors playing a role in sort of the women veterans, things like TBI and post-traumatic stress disorder? Absolutely. We have veterans who have served, who are females who have served in you know all areas of the military, right? So we absolutely see that. We absolutely see, you know, people who were oftentimes overlooked in in history, frankly, but who made very important contributions, right? You know, who were doing very important things, right? And so yeah. I'm, and I absolutely do have a cohort of, of veterans who are female. As I said, most of them are men, but those, you know, female veterans are often overlooked, but they're often very important. And it's, you know, they've had really important life experiences. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things I wanted to touch base because you brought it up a little bit before is that a lot of the veterans, you know, are spread out around the state and don't always get their primary care fully in a VA. They might be going to see doctors that are outside of the VA system for their main primary care. And sometimes we forget, or the veterans even forget, there's some of these resources or when it comes to some of these geriatric symptoms that are in the VA where the primary care doctors with them sometimes forget that, right? You mentioned some of these resources, but usually if I was working like in a private practice, I would be thinking, oh, somebody's coming to me as a vet and they're having troubles with their memory. And maybe I have to make a connection to the neurologist that's in the VA, or I have to make a connection with the 
geriatrician or the psychiatrist, and they can then do the memory evaluation. But what you're kind of telling me right now is that's not always the line you have to go through, especially if there's a large waiting list for seeing some of those specialists, potentially in rural areas where there's not enough of the specialists, even the VA, to cover that. But are there ways to connect like primary care doctor, you know, in private practice with primary care teams like you're a part of in the VA to share patients with this like uh, cognition evaluation? Absolutely. Right. So it's common in the VA that so we have what's called dual care, where a person may have an outside primary care doctor and they also may have the VA. Right. And so that's common. Right. So actually veterans, you know, who we see who have access to VA services, you know, whether it be homemaker services, whether it be, you know, hearing aids, whether it be other supports that they can get easier through the VA. But we oftentimes are talking to the outside primary care doctors, right? So we actually have that relationship, you know, where we're, uh, so I'm actually calling them or uh, so we're actually interacting and we're sharing notes, things like that. Oh, so I was curious yeah. about that. Yeah. How much yeah. sharing of notes happens? Like you do something in the VA with, you know, how likely is that note, like you diagnose somebody as having dementia, get into the private, you know, the private doctor's records that they, mm-hmm. you, you did that work and the diagnosis happened? Yeah, we absolutely try to, you know, have that collaboration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I would add to that oftentimes works the other way. So we do have veterans who are in rural areas who they may have a VA clinic out there, but they don't have, for example, like a VA neurologist. They don't have someone like in the area who actually practices neurology. So we have what's called community care where they can see that outside specialist, right? They can go to an outside office and get approved as a veteran. So that also does exist. And I would add too that in my practice, it tends to be interesting, right? Because oftentimes my patients who are homebound, so they can't leave their house easily, yeah. right? And so if I want even something like a EKG or a chest X-ray, labs are oftentimes easy, right? Because the nurse goes in and draws them. But the other stuff tends to be hard, right? So it's often, it's a interesting, you know, mix of medicine to where sometimes we have to use our intuition and, you know, try to use our geriatric skills to, you know, kind of make a diagnosis, right? So it's interesting and it's fun. Yeah. And the interesting thing there is you almost like because of somebody being homebound or more difficult, like the things we tend to do, like, you know, everybody, you know, should get a brain scan or something that becomes really hard, right? It becomes challenging for that population, but it shows you can still make a diagnosis with good clinical skills, get close, and you don't always need sort of an imaging test, right? Like you can Mm -hmm. use other modalities to help you, especially neuropsychologic testing, if you have a you know psychologist, neuropsychologist that can go and evaluate the person in the home, we can get around some of those barriers, right? Absolutely, absolutely, and it's fun and it's interesting, right? Because I you know I yeah. I am fortunate that I do have the resources that if I so I have a question about a drug, I can ask my pharmacist right in a chat message, right, easily, right, and I know and I understand that that's not in the outside outside world that easily, right? That I can talk actually talk with a geriatric psychiatrist, you know, and I know that that's not something that's really easily available in the outside world. So yeah. I I get that. Yeah. And I and the question becomes, you know, how do we sort of you know, translate, you know, some of that stuff? How do we maybe say, hey, look, this is like what the VA does and, you know, how can we translate some of that to the outside world? Right. So Yeah, and that's the you know, amazing thing about me is the VA has built up these resources and team based care over, you know, decades uh, working with older adults in their populations and really providing good aging care. And we forget about that sometimes, you know, in our entire ecosystem that those exist. And um, so I'm really glad we're having this conversation today. 
because that could make it easier for everybody if you identify somebody's a veteran and they're having troubles with their cognition is to connect them to some of that team-based support to get to that early diagnosis in the VA system and then being able to work together and to co-manage and support them as the disease continues. And that's where I wanted to go a little bit if we had a chance, Avinash, was sometimes people hesitate in making a diagnosis in primary care because of this idea that's usually well-founded, that if I bring up a question or I make a diagnosis, but I don't know what I can give them afterwards, I really need to be careful, right? Because I'm just setting people up with now some information where there's not much that you know can support them after I make that. So I have to balance those things as a physician in my head about when is the right time to do it. But it sounds like you know the VA helps you also, not just in the early phase of the diagnosis, but once you make that early diagnosis, to then support them in a team way with other activities to help them through the journey with the dementia afterwards. Can you talk a little bit about some of those team-based services that you see that help you in the follow-up care once you've made a diagnosis? Absolutely. So I would say that our social workers are are great in this regard, right? So we have a robust homemaker program. So we have, you know, home health aides who are in the home who are helping. So we have respite services, right? So for the you know, patient's primary caretaker, who's oftentimes a spouse, right? So they can get a break if they have an illness, if they have something else going on, they can have someone who can actually, you know, be in the house to, you know, help out with the veteran's care. We have adult daycare services, right, that we can actually work with, which is important. And I would also add too that we know that, you know, veterans and also other patients do best in the home, right? So the idea is to keep them in their home for as long as possible, right? Of course, there are some patients who do ultimately need to go to a nursing home. But our idea is that, look, if we can give you as much support as possible, as much help as possible, you know, have our psychologist talk to the caretaker about caregiver support and talking about, you know, how do you interact with a patient who has dementia? You know, what are your strategies to actually help out with that and the agitation and like all that stuff, right? And so, yeah. I definitely like that because I was kind of curious about that because usually all the services are, you know, focused or we think about it being focused on the person who has the veteran status. But we know like Alzheimer's disease requires sort of a, you know, an entire family and an entire community approach. And especially the caregivers are such an important piece of it, right? The informal caregivers. And in some ways, you're actually helping those caregivers who might not be veterans who might not be able to get care at the VA to get that support and care for their own well-being so they don't burn out as easily, they don't get stressed, and as a result of it, the, that person can stay in the environment they usually want to stay in, which is in their home setting. So that's really powerful. Um, are there any other services apart from like things tied to the vets themselves that the caregivers can get access to as being part of the VA, like having a, a spouse or a family member in the VA? Yeah, so they get access to sort of all of our caretaker support, which yeah. is extensive, right? So they can get access to our psychology services. They can get access to, there are some programs where they can get some other kinds of assistance to be actually paid as a caretaker. There are you know, certain criteria for that. Also, we're able to get COVID vaccinations as a spouse of a veteran, right? So we had that program in, which was great. You yeah. know, so there is a lot of support for the caretakers. And as you mentioned, we know that the data on average, I think last time that I saw, was that a caretaker actually lives about five years less mm. if they're looking after a person who has dementia, right? So right. they're 
So their own life expectancy is impacted, right? So mm-hmm. if our goal is to be keeping patients in their home, then we really have to be focusing on their caretakers too, because it's a really difficult job, right? And so that's, I think, what we do well. And I think it's a great focus that we have this team that I'm able to work with. Yeah, really powerful information. I'm glad we we're able to share and talk about it in our podcast today. And one of the things I wanted to kind of, as we wrap up for our conversation today, because I know you have to get in your car and go out to you know Joliet and see that home patient later on today, is this idea of we've been talking mainly about how the VA has these services within them and have developed this network and how people can connect them. But if I could flip it a little bit and have you, Avinash, talk about what are some of the pieces that the VA has developed over time that you think, you know, maybe could be exported out of the VA and been used in primary care practices, right? Like what are key features do you think that could be translatable from the VA model to more of our private sector model or in underserved area models? Yeah, that's a great question. I think certainly on some level, you know, part of it is that the other workers on the team, right? The other other members of the team, whether it's pharmacy, whether it's social work, right? Those aspects of it may not be something that can be actually placed in like every sort of area, right? Like in rural areas, right? But I do think that if we're able to actually focus more on this collaboration and not think about the VA and the outside world as like, you know, two separate entities that we can really, you know, help out our own veteran population. And we can also work more, for example, like with the VA, so with primary care, uh, so with the outside neurologist, right? So we can have that relationship. I do think that our model when it comes to, for example, something like caregiver support, I wish that we had that in the outside world, right? That we mm-hmm. had, you know, such a program there, right? So you are seeing that there is a movement now more towards this, you know, home care model where we are trying to keep patients in their homes. You are seeing other home care agencies mm-hmm. who are out there and understanding that, you know, patients do best at home, right? And yeah. so that's the idea. I think those aspects of it, you know, we always talk about that we don't have enough geriatricians, of course, and that's like a, that's a big issue. I don't know if we're going to, you know, really ever train enough. Yeah. Uh, it's my hope and my idea. I'd agree with you. So. My hope too. <laughs> I'm a fan of having more geriatricians, especially uh, in family medicine, be out there. But it's just a limited pool, right, with the amount of older adults. So we need to build all these ecosystems to support everybody. And I really, yeah, definitely appreciate all the work that we've learned today about the VA. I will tell you as a researcher, the other thing I think that, you know, that we have to acknowledge the VA systems for doing is sort of a national system that has a reach to a a diverse population is they can do some research about health, you know, about health outcomes like dementia that nobody else can do in the United States. Like there was a recent paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association in the last six months that helped to figure out kind of the patterns of the incidence of dementia based on race and ethnicity. And and that's really powerful information we need that can only be generated by a place like the VA. So we definitely appreciate all of the work that's going on in the VA and for you to be able to share that information with us today as an insider of Inash. And thank you again for your time. And I really enjoyed the visit out here to the Loyola Heinz VA. So I really appreciate the time we took today. And for our listeners, really appreciate you learning with us. And we look forward to another episode of The Brain Trust coming in the near future. Thanks again. Thanks a lot, Raj. Thank you to our expert faculty and to you, our listeners, for tuning into this episode. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas for future topics, please contact us at podcast at thebraintrust.com. 
For more episodes of The Brain Trust, please visit our website, thebraintrustproject.com. You'll find transcripts, speaker disclosures, instructions to claim CME credit, and other Alzheimer's resources as well. Subscribe to this podcast series on Healthcare Now Radio, Spotify, Apple, Google Play, or any major podcast platform. Thank you again, and we hope you tune in to the next episode of The Brain Trust.